verse 6, and we'll read through verse 14. Here we go. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I want to begin this morning uh, by taking you down a side road from the the main thoroughfare of the text. Um, And to call it a side road is really uh, somewhat of a misnomer. It's certainly an understatement. I I refer to what is stated in or what is mentioned in verse 6. The wrath of God. Some people would call that a back alley, not a not a side road. Um, but but I I, I want to draw your attention to Paul's mention of the wrath of God, the the, the thing that um, that our culture considers barbaric and uncivilized, um, the thing that our culture considers me a fool to to even mention, um, and the the. Uh, I guess the more alarming concern I have is that the Christian church is not real sure that they believe in it anymore either. Um, It is, of course, the first doctrine that was ever denied. Um, It was denied in Genesis 3 when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. And now we've got um, we've got preachers uh, around the country, one in particular. Um, His name's Rob Bell in Grand Rapids, Michigan who has, um, has written a book uh, entitled Love Wins, which I hope you won't read. But in that book, he eliminates the whole idea of the wrath of God, and, and um, every talk show host in America booked him um, because they wanted to see just how this preacher had pulled off this, this long-desired coup of, um, of eliminating what most people dread to mention. And... Um, and, and, and consider just completely uncivilized. Now, guys, um, if you do not believe in the wrath of God, um, I, I guess there's just a couple of things I can say to you. First of all, if you do not, you do not believe in the Bible. But secondly, um, and perhaps more importantly, you're not real high on the words of Jesus either. Because it was Jesus who taught about this subject more than all of the other New Testament authors combined. 
Now, indeed, it is unfortunate that uh, we have come to think of it in terms of human wrath. That is, this, this uncontrolled, violent, full of rage stuff. Well, guys, there's, there's nothing uncontrolled about the wrath of God. It is uh, simply his declared determination to punish sin, which, um, <laughs> which presents us with another problem because we're not really sure that we believe in sin anymore either. We, we believe in diseases. We believe in syndromes. Uh, we believe in variations from the norm. Oh, uh, homosexuality may be a variation from the norm, but it's certainly not sin. So, consequently, we, we don't talk much about repentance of sin. We talk about therapy. Um, and, and the idea of punishment, well, that's just outdated. Uh, someone may do a bad thing and may need to go to prison. But, but not for punishment. But for um, psychological evaluation and, and rehabilitation. And folks, the result of all that is that man is made into um, is just, he's made into some kind of Pavlovian animal who can be manipulated by positive or negative reinforcements, um, or by some kind of psychological testing, or or from some evolutionary breakthroughs. And on the other hand, the Bible describes us as men with souls created in the image of God who will indeed one day stand before this God, a God whose one one of his characteristics is his wrath. We will stand before that God and give an account of everything done in the flesh. Now, guys... um, I want to spend a few minutes while we're on this side road. I want to tell you why that is so wonderful. I want to tell you, I want to, I want to make an argument. And uh, you, can, you can figure out whether you like the argument or not. I want, to, I want to make an argument as to why the wrath of God is such a wonderful thing. Okay. I, I, want, to make, I want you to consider two things. First of all, you understand that one of the reasons that the non-Christian culture so despises um, the wrath of God is because they, they suggest that if you, if you promote such an idea, it produces this vengeful, um, retributive kind of notion. <clears throat> well, there's, there are many of us who disagree with that. And, and one such man is a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. Now, I know you've never heard of Miroslav. Here's a, he... Um, he wrote a book years ago entitled Exclusion and Embrace that became uh, a prize winner. He's a Croatian. You know where Croatia is? Croatia is that strip of land due east of Italy, across the Adriatic Sea. If you go to Italy, you know the boot there, and cross the Adriatic, that, that next landmass that you run into is Croatia. Well, Wolf is from Croatia, and he wrote this book, Exclusion and Embrace, and in the book, he wanted, to, he wanted to discuss the horrors of all the fighting that was going on in the Balkans. Um, and and a, a, a section of the world that was locked in this cycle of retaliation and revenge. And that's what the book was about. The cycle of revenge that was, um, that was 
characteristic of the Balkans. Now, guys, when you and I think of the war in the Balkans, what we think of is the thing that happened in the 90s. Um, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, genocide, um, Slobodan Milosevic, you remember the, the Bosnia and Serbia and Kosovo, and, and then President Clinton at the time bombed uh, that whole section of the, of the world. Remember that? When Susan and I were in Budapest for those three months, we had lunch with a couple who were refugees from Bosnia who had fled the bombing of their country by our country. And we had lunch with him. I asked this, his name was Dragon or Dragon. Um, he was a police officer from his village. And, and I asked him what he thought about my country bombing his country. He was all for it. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, the, 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 uh, the, the cycle of retaliation goes back way before that. Way before the 90s. World War II. When the Germans had dropped down into, into the Balkans and controlled the Balkans, a group of patriots gathered and, and, and fought the Germans in this guerrilla warfare. And, and every time they would mangle the Germans somehow, the Germans would gather, would round up a whole village of people, four or five hundred people, seat them in chairs and shoot them in the back, executing them as cowards. But ladies and gentlemen, it goes way before that. The Ottoman Turks and all of that, this, this cycle of, re, of murder and revenge and more murder and more retaliation and more revenge. Now, this book by Miroslav Volf was examining that, that cycle of revenge. And guys, I want you to listen to what he has to say. Just, it's just a paragraph. But ladies and gentlemen, would you please listen to this? He says, and I quote, a cycle of retaliation is not fueled by a belief in a God of judgment and wrath, but is fueled by a lack of a belief in a God of judgment and wrath. If God were not angry over injustice, he's not worthy of worship. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in a God of judgment. It, listen to this. It takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. If people see murder and rape, How do you keep them from being sucked into the cycle of vengeance? What do you say to them? Oh, violence never solves anything. Such naive moralizing does not touch hearts. It shows no concern for justice. The only thing that will pacify the human heart is to say there is a God And he will put everything right. Your problem is that you've lived a sheltered life. Hey guys, do you get that? Do you know what he said to you? This, this kind of, this kind of uh, naive moralizing. So, well, the uh, uh, God of wrath and vengeance, it just creates more vengeance. And Volt says, that's because you live in a suburban home that you would say something stupid like that. 
If you've seen murder after murder after rape after rape for, for centuries, what is it that will stop you from getting sucked into this cycle of violence? It is to tell you that there is a God. And one day he will set everything right. If you remove that, ladies and gentlemen, then putting things right becomes your job. You see, ladies and gentlemen, removing the God of wrath doesn't fuel retaliation. Oh, no, removing him does fuel retaliation. Preaching him gives hope that the retaliation, the cycle of revenge can stop because we can step back and say, there is a God and he will put all things right. The reason that we hold to such naive positions is because we've lived a sheltered life. That's our problem. Now, guys, that's just one reason why the wrath of God is such a wonderful thing. But, but, but there's another reason. Guys, without it, that is, without the wrath of God, how do you explain Calvary? How do you explain the cross? The, the wrath of God against sin demanded Calvary. Calvary, or the cross, shows you just how much God loves his people. That he would ask his son to endure such extremes so that he could save us. Tell me, you who who don't believe in a God of wrath, tell me, what did it cost your God to save you? Nothing. But my God, this God of Ephesians 5, 6, he didn't love me this much. He didn't love me this much. He loved me this much. Ladies and gentlemen, the wrath of God gives us a measure of love. It gives us a way to know of the enormity of the love of God for his people. Because of those two reasons, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, you tamper with this and you have, you have emasculated the good news out of the good news. There's no more good news if you eliminate this item that is mentioned to you in verse 6 of Ephesians 5. Now, guys, that, that, that's a side road. <laughs> I, I want to bring you back to the, to the main road of the text. Because really what you have here is, is um, the New Testament method for sanctification. Now, is that a new word to you, sanctification? Sanctification is just the Christian life. Sanctification is just the, um, uh, the life that we live as Christians, the process of growing into the likeness of Christ and all that. that that's what sanctification is. But from this text, there's several things that you can learn. First of all, clearly, it is not something that you received as an act 
or as an experience. It's not a one-time event. It's a process. It's the result of the outworking of truth. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. And sanctification is not something in which I am passive. If I am passive in sanctification, guys, then all of these exhortations on the part of the Apostle Paul are unnecessary. These are practical sections of each epistle, and they're completely unnecessary if I am passive in in sanctification. I'm not passive. In fact, I I want you to look at what it says to us, guys, in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Gang, one of the major distinctions between Christians and non-Christians is this whole motif of light versus darkness. Now, gang, look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light. Gang, do do you see what it says? It doesn't say you lived in a dark world. It was a very dark world that you were in. No, he says non-Christians are darkness. And it doesn't say that you, you are now living in the light. It says Christians are light. You used to be darkness, but now you are light. There is nothing small about this transformation. There's nothing nothing little about it. This is is nothing short of uh, than a new creation. There's no slight improvement. I was darkness, but now I am light. And, And those two things cannot be mixed, guys. They are eternal opposites. Light dispels darkness. It's not that I'm in darkness. I was darkness. It's not that I'm in light. I am now light. The non-Christian is himself darkness. Not that he lives in a dark world, but he is darkness. And guys, you are either one or the other. You are either light. This very minute, you are either light or you are darkness. And the problem for the darkness is not solved by simply showing them the light. What's needed is that they've got to be changed from the center. At the center of their being, there has to be this, this definitional transformation, which is the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, guys. That's, that's what's required. When you become a Christian, you undergo the most profound change in all of human experience. You you are changed from darkness to light. And it affects the the vitals of my being, my my personality, my emotions, my thinking, my, my actions. And then another thing, guys, notice what the text says as to how this this new life is made manifest. The chief characteristic of this new life is mentioned in verse 9. For the fruit of light. That is, the chief characteristic of this new life that is now mine is the bearing of fruit. I begin to function as I, as I really am. Guys, 
And the fruit that I bear is not mechanical, it's natural. It's, um, it, it's, it's that I'm a fruit tree, like Psalm 1 says. Whereas non-Christians may look like Christmas trees, they might look pretty, but there's no life there. There, the, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is fruit comes naturally for the Christian. You know, guys, just to illustrate my point, when, when Susan and I were living in Florida, one of my greatest desires, one of my greatest desires was to have my own grapefruit tree. I wanted to go out in the backyard and I wanted to pick grapefruit off of my tree and come in and eat it. And I tried numerous times to... to um, I tried to even splice one one time, took a, a sour stock, and, and I, I tried everything. Tried four different times. And on one occasion, I, I, I was make, I, I was almost, I mean, it was working. The tree produced fruit, and they were about the size of a billiard ball. And, and we left to go on vacation, I think, and we came home, and the tree was dried up, burned up, and dead right there in my front yard. And so what I did is I went to the grocery store, and I bought myself a sack of grapefruits. And I brought them home and got some masking tape and a big old staple gun. And I went out to the tree and I stapled those, 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 um, those grapefruit on there. Now, I didn't do that, did I? Because, ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't make me a, gra- a grapefruit tree. It's the difference between a mechanical fruit as opposed to natural fruit. It, it, it doesn't happen immediately. It starts as a bud and then it springs into a flower and then there's a fruit. And the amounts of fruit, they increase over time after some pruning. But the fruit is always from the inside out. It's not that I tack on little small things from the outside in. No, ladies and gentlemen, it's always from the inside out. Now, guys, he then mentions three specific fruits in verse nine. He says, good, right, and true. That is the fruits are good, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Gang, we don't have time to talk about all three of those. The opposite of good is bad and the opposite of right is wrong. But the one that I do want to spend some time on is the word true, because I'm telling you, we live in a culture that doesn't even think that that exists. That truth cannot be found. That absolutes are nowhere to be found. Gang, listen to me. Becoming a Christian doesn't start by doing something. It starts by hearing something. And what is it that you hear? You hear a truth claim. You hear a body of information. You hear the gospel. And that gospel makes a claim to not only be a truth, but to be the truth. And at that point, the culture cries foul. Because truth doesn't exist. Ladies and gentlemen, if they're right, then burn your Bibles and don't come back here next week. You're wasting your time. The, the, the zenith of this truth is relative thing came to fruition in a movement called postmodernism. 
Now, guys, uh, uh, um, modernism was first. Modernism was the view that said that all of our problems can be solved with science and technology. We found out that wasn't true. So we moved to postmodernism. Big heyday in the 70s and the 80s. And what postmodernism basically said is that truth doesn't exist. That all views are deprivileged. That is, all, all truth claims are deprivileged. There's, that all claims are equally valid. There's no such thing as a truth. And the postmoderns were, were glad about their discovery. And, and interestingly, one of the reasons it was said that so, why so many people embraced postmodernism is because it gave them the opportunity to challenge oppression. <laughs> By the way, you know who the oppressors, the oppressors were, don't you? That would be us. We were one of them. Because we claimed to have truth. And if you claim to have truth, then you use your truth to oppress people. And so, as a challenge to oppression, people became postmoderns. And then over time, they confronted a, a big difficulty, one that they didn't foresee. And it was created because postmodernism attacked everything. And if you deprivilege all positions, you can assert no position. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you can go online now and just, just Google postmodernism is dead. There's probably six different articles just under that same title. That was, they're all from the 90s. Now it's the postmoderns saying postmodernism is dead. Because they, they ran into this difficulty, and the difficulty is if we deprivilege all positions, then we can assert no position. If we attack everything, then nobody has a truth to attack. G.K. Chesterton, one of my heroes, he said this. I, I hope you get this. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Chesterton, it's brief. He says, The problem with doubting everything gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. Because all denunciation implies a doctrine of some kind. By rebelling against everything, you lose your right to rebel against anything. You see, guys... The postmoderns thought that the suggestion that there was no truth was going to be liberating. But it wasn't. Because you can't object to anything. Because if you object to anything, then your objection is to be objected to. And so in all these articles that talk about postmodernism is now dead, what they're saying is we found out that we can't live without truth. 
And Christianity has been saying that for millennia. One of the fruits, ladies and gentlemen, of the life that we now have in Christ is that we are in possession of not a truth that's postmodernism. We're in possession of the truth. Gang, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is a proclamation. It's a truth claim. Now, if you want to reject it, you go right ahead and do so. But don't be so naive. Don't be so antiquated that you could think that you could live without truth. Even the postmoderns know that's not true. Gang, the gospel comes to us. It doesn't ask us to do anything. The gospel is something that we hear. And what did you hear? Truth. Truth, ladies and gentlemen. We live in a culture, I'm telling you, that doesn't think it exists and yet has discovered that they can't live without it. One other thing, and I want you to see in the text and then I'll quit. It's in verse 10. He continues in this whole little brief presentation about the New Testament definition of sanctification he says in this walk of light there's fruit to be born and there's the fruit that's mentioned in verse 9 and then he says as he closes and heads towards the close in verse 10 he says and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord gang The great goal of the Christian is that we have set ourselves on a path, a path that is trying to discover what it is that really pleases our Lord. Is that hard? That's what we're on, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're about. We're trying to find a path that pleases the Lord. And it's it's only the Christian who is concerned about goodness and righteousness and truth because he knows that those are three things that please his Lord. The non-Christian, they they like goodness. They like like right and wrong, kind of. They like it because it ennobles them. And, and, and they fear that if it's ever found out by other people that I'm not good, then it might hurt business. 
It might hurt my reputation and I might not get promoted. But, but it is all self-terminating. But for the Christian, the highest motive for us is is my Savior pleased? Ladies and gentlemen, you want to know what the life of sanctification for the believer is? Summarize, you can summarize it like this. What is it that brings pleasure to this Savior of mine? Does he approve? Because we Christians, we, we are people who realize that we owe everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we hope to be. To this Lord of ours. The one. The one who loved me. While I was once still darkness. And so pleasing him. Becomes my delight. Pleasing him becomes my delight. Tell me, do you think um, internet porn pleases him? Just, just ask him. What do you think? Do you think... Um, Drinking yourself to sleep at night. Do you think that pleases him? Hmm? Exchanging emails and telephone calls and texts with somebody other than your spouse. Where there's all kind of risque language, jokes and references being exchanged. Tell me. Just, just wondering. Do you think that pleases him? Gang. Every person sitting in this room is either light or darkness. And here's the litmus test. Do I long to please Jesus? Our Father, we are, um, we are people who love this book. We love it because it tells us the truth. We love it because it gives us clear outlines as to how we might please the one who 
gave himself up for us. We love it, O God, because in it we come face to face with the way, the truth, and the life. And without him, no man will ever come to the Father. Would you, um, would you use this book to, um, to stimulate us all into a greater determination to find ways to walk in a path that is pleasing? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.